All right, well, for several weeks now, we have been in the book of Ruth, so we are continuing in that series today. We're now to Ruth chapter 4, so I'm going to read a few verses, though, to begin from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6, and then we will continue with Ruth. So Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6 says this, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall, be married, shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in to take her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So that was Deuteronomy 25. Now let's move to Ruth, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to her relative Imimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are my witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Amimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Mahalon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahalon, I have brought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among, among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You're my, you are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Ruth chapter 4. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, so, this past week, Nathan and I uh, decided, well, he decided and I went along, that we should meet with a financial planner, which um, money is my least favorite thing. So one of the major perks of getting married is that I never think about money anymore. Uh, Nathan does all of it, and when I need money, I'm just like that very... <laughs> 
<laughs> traditional housewife, can I please have 50 bucks? And he gives it to me. Um, and so we, we this, this, this week met with a financial planner to talk about our future and our retirement and our investments. And my guess is some of you have done that. And my guess is some of you, uh, you know, are very good at it. We're not. So we had to go talk to an expert about it. Um, and of course, we do this because we want to make good investments in our future. We want to be wise about our future. We want to make sure that that when we get older and we can't work anymore, our kids don't have to support us and stuff like that. So, um, so that's so we're trying to think about our future and, and be wise about that and make good investments. And of course, this is one of the interesting things about being human, I think, is that humans can think ahead and plan for the future in a way that no other creature on Earth does. All other creatures on Earth are very present-bound. They don't think back, as far as we know, and they don't think forward, at least not in the way that we do. So as a result, because we can think about the future, and because often our, our thinking about the future causes some anxiety and fear because we don't know what's going to happen and we don't know what's coming, is that we tend to be, not all of us, but most of the human race tends to do what they can to make plans for the future and to make sure our future is secure and that it's safe um, and that we try to make good investments now so that later they'll pay off. So in today's text, Ruth 4, 1 through 12, we have a conversation between two men about the future. So they're Boaz and this redeemer are talking about the future. And one of these men is very focused on making the future safe for himself and his own children, his own family. And one of these men is giving up a secure future in order to take part in Yahweh's future. Um, and of course, uh, the first one is the unnamed redeemer and the second one is Boaz. So all of this has to do with yet another Old Testament law. So every, every chapter in Ruth that we've talked about so far has something to do with an Old Testament law. So first it was gleaning, then it was the Redeemer, the Goel, and this time it's, uh, it's a law that is now commonly known as leverate marriage. And uh, John read it from Deuteronomy 25. Um, but basically the idea is that leverate marriage is when a woman's husband dies and she doesn't have any children yet, um, her brother-in-law, her, her husband's brother, marries her and becomes her husband. Then any son that they have, the first son that they have, will legally be the son and heir of the dead brother, not the living brother. And the purpose of this is so that the dead man's name will not be blotted out from Israel. And so that his land will not be lost to either another family member or a different family entirely. So the purpose is to keep that man's, that, that family name alive and to keep the land in the family that God gave it to in the first place. So that's the purpose of this thing called leverate marriage. And we remember from chapter 3 that Naomi wanted to give Ruth rest and so she cooked up this plan that Ruth would essentially become Boaz's concubine. Um, but Ruth had bigger ideas and bigger plans. And she asked um, Boaz to instead be her goel as opposed to just kind of uh, her becoming his concubine. And, uh, and so he said, well, there's a closer person, uh, someone who's a closer relative. I have to talk to them first. So let me do that and then I'll get back to you. Um, but I'll do it if I can. 
And uh, at the end of the chapter, Naomi again has the word rest in her mouth. She says, this man will not rest until the situation is resolved. So uh, chapter three is bookended with the ideas of rest. And now chapter four is Boaz going to try and make this thing happen. And so what Leverite marriage really tells us is that even in the face of death, God has a plan for redemption. That Yahweh is not the kind of God who lets death stop him from accomplishing his goals. Um, and, so, um, and so when Ruth asks Boaz to be her Goel, her redeemer, she's asking him to both buy the land that Naomi is selling, and we haven't been told about this prior to chapter four, but clearly Naomi is poor, um, and she's trying to figure out ways to provide for herself and for Ruth, so she has land to sell. And so um, being the redeemer means you'll both buy this land and marry Ruth in order to raise up a son for Naomi and Elimelech's family. That's who the firstborn son is going to be for. That's who the firstborn son is going to belong to. So in other words, the land he buys from Naomi and the son he and Ruth have together, all that will legally belong to Elimelech's family, not to Boaz's family. Legally, the son will be Naomi's, and that's what Ruth is asking Boaz to do. So it's actually a pretty big ask um, when, we, when we kind of figure out what these laws mean and how they're going to affect Boaz. But again, there's this closer redeemer who Boaz needs to talk to, uh, and so Boaz goes and does that. So this is where we are in chapter 4. Boaz goes to the city gate where he knows he'll... Uh, and remember, Boaz lives in Bethlehem, and he knows he'll find the, the closer redeemer he'll walk by at some point in the day, so Boaz will, will be able to talk to him. And that is, in fact, what happens. The, the guy walks past, and Boaz says, come, come aside, friend, and sit down next to me. I want to talk to you. He gathers a crowd of 10 people because he's, there's going to be a legal proceeding. We want witnesses. And he asks the man if he wants to buy the land that Naomi is selling. And the man says, yeah, absolutely I do. I will definitely buy that land. And then Boaz says that whoever buys the land also has to marry Ruth and do the duty of a brother. Uh, so leverate marriage. And at this point, you can see the, you can kind of imagine the closer redeemer saying, oh, well, okay, I don't actually want to do that. Um, the, la I, the land is not that important to me. And so he says, no, no, I can't do that. And he says, I can't redeem it myself lest I impair my own inheritance. And the NIV says, um, because I mo might endanger my own estate. So he's thinking about his future and about his, the inheritance he's going to pass along to his own family and to his own sons who he probably already has. Um, and he says, oh, no, I can't do that. So I think it's interesting. What does he mean by I can't do this lest I impair my own um, inheritance? What does he mean by this? Because first, it's clear he wants the land but he doesn't want Ruth. That's what he wants. He wants the land, but he doesn't want Ruth. So it seems that he thinks getting the land is good for his own inheritance because he assumes the property will pass to his sons. By the way, I think it's worth noting here that he doesn't seem to be thinking about Jubilee. He doesn't seem to be thinking about the fact that the land won't be his permanently. Um, it will have to go back to that family eventually. Um, I don't know. We can, be, we can be jaded and cynical about this guy or not. Some people say that he couldn't, didn't think he could afford a second wife and more children. Uh, it might also be that he thinks if he buys the property and nobody marries Ruth, those two ladies will die off before Jubilee comes around and 
then the land is his for good. I don't know what he's thinking. Um, but he certainly doesn't seem to be thinking about Jubilee. Um, but marrying Ruth will jeopardize this piece of property belonging to his family for however long he wants it to belong to them. Because if he marries Ruth, any son they have will belong to Elimelech and Naomi's family, not to his. The land he buys from Naomi will go back to Naomi through the son that he creates. In other words, it's very much counter to his own interest to marry Ruth because he'll have this land and he'll spend all this money taking care of it, investing in it, and then it will just go back into another family as soon as this kid gets old enough to have it. So clearly, this guy is concerned about the future. He wants any land that he owns to belong to his family and to his family's name. So as far as I can tell, this seems to be the reason why he says, no, I'm not going to marry Ruth because to do so would endanger his own inheritance. It would endanger the future of the sons who bear his name, as opposed to Elimelech and Naomi's name. In other words, he says, it's a bad investment, so I'm just going to pass. Um, that's not good for my future. It's not a good investment opportunity. I'm just going to pass on it. Um, and he says, hey, Boaz, if you want to do it, I mean, go ahead. But I'm not going to. So it's now an opportunity for Boaz. And of course, as we already know, Boaz is willing to do it. But I think it's important to note that Boaz knows exactly what he's doing. So again, sometimes this book gets portrayed as kind of a, you know, the Hallmark movie book of the Bible, where it's super romantic and the young widow comes to town and she meets the wealthy landowner and they fall in love and have baby, blah, blah, blah. It's all like so sweet and nice. It's not. Um, I said that to my dad, and he said, well, yeah, maybe it's a Middle Eastern romance. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's a good one, because um, <laughs> Middle Eastern romances are not like American romances at all. Um, but Boaz is really going into this marriage with his eyes wide open. Um, two times he states clearly that marriage to Ruth is for the purpose of maintaining or perpetuating the dead man's name and to protect the dead man's property. Boaz himself says that, not our narrator. The narrator puts it in Boaz's mouth. So Boaz knows what he's doing. The marriage benefits Elimelech's family. It does not benefit Boaz's family. And Boaz is going to do it anyway. And so the question arises, what's the difference between Boaz and this other guy? Um, I mean, Boaz is clearly a wealthy landowner in Bethlehem. And... Um, Wealthy, land, wealthy people tend to get that way by caring about their futures and by caring about money. Um, somebody told me once, a banker told me once, that uh, his wealthiest clients always say that their first rule is, I always pay myself first. Um, I always pay myself first. Meaning you owe money to lots of people, but, but wealthy people have the rule, I always pay me first. Um, so Boaz has, is a wealthy person, but he clearly doesn't have this rule that I always pay myself first. Um, why not? The other guy does. The other redeemer seems to have some, something akin to that way of thinking about his future. So we can see that both Boaz and this unnamed redeemer are thinking about the future, but they have very different visions of what that future is. So the closer redeemer has a vision of the future that is limited to himself, his own name, and his own family. He judges every investment opportunity by how it will help or hinder that future. 
Boaz, on the other hand, has a vision of the future that is shaped by Yahweh's vision of the future. As laid out in the laws and the words of Yahweh given to his people. And we've already seen what some of those are. We've seen gleaning laws. We've seen redeemer laws. We've seen leverate marriage laws. All of those laws paint a picture of what God wants for the future of his people. And God's purpose is redemption and restoration for everybody. It's just, it's right there in the law. That's what gleaning redeemer laws and leverite marriage laws point to. And so Boaz judges every investment opportunity by how well it will fit into that future, Yahweh's future. So the two men are guided by very different visions of the future, and then they act accordingly. They act according to whatever future they're, they're envisioning. And so when opportunities arise, the, the closer redeemer's first question is, is this a good opportunity for me and my family? But Boaz's first question when an opportunity arises is, does this align with God's purposes for God's future? And can I get in on that? So both men act to invest in the future. The redeemer invests in his own little vision of the future, and Boaz invests in God's big vision of the future. And honestly, from a human point of view, the closer redeemer seems wise. He's making a careful, good decision about the future for himself and for his children. Boaz seems to be the unwise one from our point of view. But of course, God has a different point of view. And I think the author of the text emphasizes this point in a really clever and kind of subtle way. Um, in In the fact that he refuses to give us the name of the closer redeemer. So in verse 1, Boaz goes to the city gate, and he's going to wait for this guy to come along. And when he sees him, he says, turn aside, friend, and sit down. Well, this is a rather generous translation of the Hebrew, a generous to this unnamed guy, because what Boaz actually says in the Hebrew is, turn aside, so-and-so, and sit and let's talk. The Hebrew text calls him such-and-such or so-and-so. And of course, this is a phrase we still use to this day. You know, I was talking to so-and-so, and and this is what came up. In other words, the person I'm talking to isn't what matters. I want to just talk about what I'm talking about. Ah, who cares what that guy's name is? This is the important thing. That's what the author of our text is saying. Boaz went and talked to such-and-such, and and here's what they talked about. So the author refuses to name the closer redeemer. But of course, this is ironic, and I think funny, because the closer redeemer does everything he can think of to safeguard what? His name. And in his one tiny little brush with fame, one tiny little brush with God's redemptive plan, he doesn't get named. In other words, his name is totally lost to history. Lost. But that's the thing he was most concerned about. And Boaz, who's willing to give up his name, gets named and named and named and named and named. Here we are, 3,000 years later, still talking about Boaz. We all know his name. So the author of Ruth is telling us, when you depend on yourself to protect your own name and your own inheritance, sooner or later it's going to get lost. Because we all die and then we can't do anything to protect our name anymore. We can't do anything to perpetuate our own name anymore. But when you depend on Yahweh to protect your name and your inheritance, it might look like it's lost for a little while, but it actually is going to be kept safe. And it might even become greater than you could have ever imagined. So Boaz, in being willing to give up his name, 
finds a great defender of his name in Yahweh. So, just to be kind of perfectly clear, here's a summary of the book of Ruth so far. We have two people who are distant related, distantly related to this family headed by Elimelech and Naomi. There is no law in Israel or anywhere else at that time that I know of that requires either one of them to intervene on behalf of this family. Ruth, the first person, is just their widowed and foreign daughter-in-law. If she had gone home at the beginning of the book like Orpah did, no one would have thought the worse of her. She wouldn't have been doing anything wrong. It would have been a totally legitimate thing for her to do, and in fact, probably a wise thing for her to do. So that's the first person, Ruth. And Boaz is some kind of distant cousin. We don't know the exact relationship. He is related to the family, but only distantly. There are clearly people who are more closely related to the family than he is. And he's not Elimelech's brother, and he's certainly not Malon's brother, which means in the case of Leverite marriage, he, there are no obligations on him at all. Leverite marriage does not apply to Boaz in this case. He's not a close enough relative. So we have Ruth and Boaz, neither one, of, neither one which has an obligation to this family. Nonetheless, both of them agree to put aside their own interests to go above and beyond what is required by the law and to entrust their futures to Yahweh so that they can rescue and redeem Elimelech's family. That's what this whole book is about. Two kind of strangers who decide to put their own interests aside and rescue and redeem a family that's been ruined and devastated. And they do it because they say over and over again, that's what Yahweh does. So we're going to get on board with that and we're going to do the same thing. So I'm sure that at this point you don't need me to tell you that Ruth and Boaz are pointing to Jesus. I mean, I think it's just so incredibly obvious at this point. Um, because Jesus is the one who gives up his future for ours. Jesus is the one who thinks about a bigger future than just his own and then acts accordingly. Jesus' last words on the cross, his very last words on the cross, are, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In other words, he says, Father, my future and whatever's in it belongs to you. I'm giving myself up to you and you can do whatever you want with this. But I've done this thing and now it belongs to you. I can't do anymore. So it's just yours. I'm giving it to you. I trust you that whatever you do with it, it will be good and right. I don't claim it for myself. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And God's answer to Jesus saying that is resurrection. When Jesus says, I'm giving my whole future to you, God says resurrection. That is the answer. So, as I was working on this sermon this week, I noticed that the Hebrew word that is translated in the ESV perpetuate, and some others maintain, meaning Leverite's marriage purpose is to perpetuate the dead man's name, is elsewhere translated in the Hebrew scriptures as raise up. So, of course, this piqued my interest. Uh, so I did, decided to do a little digging, and um, 
I decided to look up Ruth chapter four in a translation that's called the Septuagint. So this, uh, this is not meant to be technical, but the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's a Greek translation that the Jewish people themselves created about 200 years before Jesus was born. So Jews who, can't, who couldn't speak Hebrew would use this Greek translation of their own scriptures. So I decided to look up Ruth four in the Septuagint because in the Septuagint it will be in Greek. So this Hebrew word that we're translating perpetuate or maintain in Greek is translated into the Greek word anastase. Anastase means resurrection, which is exactly the word I was hoping it would be. Um, and so in the Greek version of Ruth 4, Boaz says the purpose of Leverite marriage is to resurrect... Elimelech and Naomi's family. The redeemer, Goel, resurrects dead people. Boy, if that isn't pointing to Jesus, I don't know what is. The redeemer resurrects dead people. And that's what Ruth asked Boaz to do. And that's what Boaz says yes to. And what our closer redeemer says no to. It's way too risky. I can't do that. So... On the threshing floor, at night, in the middle of the night, this is last week's sermon, Ruth says to Boaz, hey, I've got a really good idea. Let's redeem and resurrect Elimelech and Naomi's family. And Boaz says, oh, that is a good idea. Yeah, let's do it. Um, so they make a plan together in the middle of the night on the threshing floor to resurrect a dead family. And then they go and they do it. Obviously with Yahweh's help and with Yahweh's future uh, as the thing that they're looking at. But, I mean, this is just, I think, amazing and super exciting. Um, when that happens, Ruth and Boaz basically point into God's future, and they say, we know what Yahweh is doing. He's redeeming his people. He's resurrecting the dead, and we want in on that. We want to be a part of that. Like Jay Moon, I want the blessing, right? I want to be a part of what Yahweh is doing. When Ruth and Boaz say yes to Elimelech and Naomi's ruined family, they point to Jesus. Because, of course, they can't actually raise the dead. They can only foreshadow the one who will actually raise the dead. That's not a metaphor. It's for real. That's what Jesus says he's going to do. So... You know, I think Ruth and Boaz are pretty great. I think they're pretty amazing. I think they're setting a pretty, uh, they're creating a narrative that is very exciting and, and they're inviting us to become a part of that, just like they became a part of that. And as I've been thinking about, you know, this idea of cycle breakers, how is Ruth a cycle breaker? We talked about Ruth as kind of the last judge. She's never called a judge, but she does what none of the other judges could do. Like, how does that work? How is this actually breaking the cycle of idolatry? And it actually made me think of an experience that I've been having. It started uh, quite a few years ago, actually, when I first joined this church. Uh, growing up, I had, of course, read about fasting in the Bible and heard about it, but to be completely honest, I had never met anyone who ever fasted. It was not something the church I grew up in did. Um, and so when I when I started, when we started coming to Life Church, I was a little bit shocked the first time uh, church leadership stood up and said, okay, we're, the whole church is having a fast this week. And I was like, what? 
that can't be real. Um, nope, it was. That's what they wanted us to do. So me, always being uh, very prone to obey authority, um, said, okay, fine, like, I guess I'll do it. Um, I didn't know what I was doing or why I was doing it, but I was like, all right, if somebody in charge tells me to do it, I'll just do it. Um, so I did. And big surprise, I hated it. Because um, I really like to eat when I'm hungry. Um, and that makes me feel better. So, um, but I was like, oh, fine, I'll do it. And this kept happening. Like, people kept saying, okay, we're having a fast. And every time I was like, oh, I, this, I hate fasting. Why do you keep telling me to fast? And I was like, this, mm. like, so every time I did it, I would get madder, but I would keep doing it because, you know, I'm kind of trained, like, just do what your church leaders tell you. Um, and, uh, and I just, just kept getting more and more mad. About it. And this went on for months, maybe even a couple years, where every few months there'd be a call for a fast. I'd do it. I'd be super mad. Um, for an extended period of time, and then I'd get over it, and then, boom, another fast gets called. I'm like, oh, gracious. Okay, so, um, so anyway, I remember specifically one night, I was in the middle of a fasting day, and I was sitting at the stoplight at 10th and Minnesota, and I was just super ticked. I was so hungry, and I was just like, this fasting stuff is for the birds. Like, I, <laughs> I hate it. And I'm like, and I'm not getting anything out of it. It's not accomplishing anything. It's so stupid. Why do I have to do this? And I was like, I'm never, I'm not going to do it anymore. It's just dumb. And I said, and I'm saying all this in my head, and I suddenly heard myself, and I thought, oh my goodness, I sound like my worst students. And my worst students are people who make my life kind of miserable, quite honestly. Uh, none of them are in this room, so it's all good. Um, <laughs> um, but here's, here's the thing. Here's the, here's the characteristic I most value in a student. If you're a student, listen up. If you're a teacher, you can tell me whether you agree or not. The characteristic I most value in a student is trust. A student who trusts me, their teacher, we are going to have a good time. We are going to have a great relationship. Because a student who trusts me does what I ask them to do, expecting that something good will come from it. And then it's on me, the teacher, to make sure that that's actually, like my assignments are actually going to do that. And my, what I tell them to do is actually going to bear some fruit if they trust me on it. So the teacher has to be trustworthy in order to be trusted. But a student who trusts me says, I don't know why I'm supposed to read this book, and I would never read this book on my own, and I don't know why you assigned three chapters instead of just one today, but okay, I'll do it. I trust you. I think maybe you know what you're talking about, so I'll do it and see what happens. The students who don't trust me say things like, this is such a stupid book, and it costs way too much money, and why do I have to read three chapters instead of one? And so, a lot of them just don't do it. So, of course, they don't get anything out of it. But some are like me, and they're like, fine, I've been taught to do what my teacher tells me, so I'll do it. And the whole time, they're like, I hate this book. This book is stupid. I hate this chapter. I hate this class. And at the end, they're like, I didn't get anything out of it. And my thought is, of course you didn't get anything out of it. You spent the whole time complaining in your head. Of course you didn't get anything out of it. And as I was sitting at the red light on 10th in Minnesota, I was like, oh, shoot. Like, I'm one of those students. I'm the person who's just constantly complaining through the assignment my teacher has given me. And by my teacher, I don't mean the church leadership. I mean God. Because God says, I want you to fast. And a trusting student says, okay, that's pretty weird, and I don't know why you want me to do that, but all right, I'll do it, and I'll see what happens. Just going to see what happens. 
And so sitting there in the car, I remember this very distinctly, I thought, wow, I really don't want to be one of those people. So next time I fast, I'm going to try to do it in trust. And so I did. Now, I didn't immediately do it. I was like, I'm sure the church will call another fast. I'll just wait till then. <laughs> and they did. You, it's very predictable. And so, uh, and so I was like, okay, this time I'm going to do it, not trusting the church so much, although that's part of it, but trusting Yahweh. Yahweh says fasting is good and that it draws us closer to him. So I'm just going to assume that he knows what he's talking about. And I'm just going to try to do it in trust and see what happens. And the amazing thing, or maybe the not amazing thing at all, is that it was a totally different experience, right? Because I trusted my teacher. And it turns out I have a pretty trustworthy teacher. He knows what he's talking about. And it was interesting because I was like, I'm just going to fast, which means I'm not going to eat food. I didn't try to be super spiritual. I didn't try to figure out what it means. I didn't, I didn't even pray while I fasted, which I know for a lot of people would be a big no-no. But I was like, I'm not going to do anything except what the teacher tells me to do. And the teacher told me to fast, so that's what I'm doing. And over the last six or seven years, fasting has become one of the most interesting spiritual things I've ever done. I still don't necessarily like it, but it's something's going on there. It's very, very interesting. There's a lot to be learned. And I don't at all say that what I'm learning from fasting is what you might learn from it. But, um, but here's the thing. God definitely knows what he's doing. And when I trust my teacher, I learn something. So what does all of that have to do with Ruth and Boaz? Well, I think that in Ruth, we see that first Ruth and then Boaz enter into a series of fasts. When Ruth commits herself to Naomi and Yahweh, she is choosing to fast from money, going back to her own land, sexual gratification, having her own husband, and from power and control, making sure she, her future is what she wants it to be. And then she proceeds to ask Boaz to do exactly the same thing. In the harvest fields, Boaz is fasting from money. Every sheaf that Ruth picks up is a sheaf that actually belongs to Boaz, but he's fasting from it. On the threshing floor, when she shows up in the middle of the night, he's fasting from sexual gratification. He could have sex with her. No one would care. Naomi wants him to, but he doesn't. And at the city gate, he's fasting from power and control because he says, my future belongs to Yahweh, not me. I'm giving it up. I'm giving it up to Yahweh. And it's much harder to worship money when you're giving your wealth away. And it's much harder to worship sex and our own desires when we're not indulging in them. And it's much harder to worship power when you put your future in someone else's hands. Ruth is a cycle breaker because she is willing to fast from all the things that humans naturally want and tend to give themselves over to. And she does this in order to be generous to other people. She has to fast from those things if she wants to stay with Naomi. And so she fasts in order to be like Yahweh so that she can be generous to others. And she doesn't just do that herself. She calls on other people to do it as well, namely Boaz. So that's why I think we're, we're on fairly solid ground when we say Ruth is the last judge. She's the judge who actually breaks the cycle. 
So the cycle of idolatry is broken when we trust God enough to do what he's asked us to do. In other words, when we come to God on his own terms rather than ours. And I don't want that to sound burdensome because I know that it can. It's not supposed to sound burdensome. Um, What God is saying when he says, come to me on my own terms, he's saying, hey, I'm redeeming and resurrecting the whole world. Do you want in on that? Our answer should be, yes, (laughs) for sure. I definitely want in on that. He's inviting us to participate in his work of redemption. It's like every once in a while I see a little kid gets to throw out the first pitch um, at, at the beginning of a major league baseball season. Like, imagine that you're that kid, and your favorite Major League Baseball team calls you up and says, hey, do you want to throw out the first pitch? The kid doesn't say, well, here's my terms. Would you like to negotiate? Like, the the kid just says, yes, of course I want to. Like, tell me where to show up. Tell me when to be there. Tell me what to wear. I'll be there. He's like, I get to be a part of my favorite team. Yes, I will be there. And I'll be there on whatever terms you say. So that's what God is saying. He's saying, do you want to be a part of what I'm doing? Do you want to be on my team? And so this is not meant to be a burdensome invitation. Quite the opposite. It's meant to be exciting. It's meant to be seen as an incredibly privileged invitation that we get to be a part of what God is doing. We get to be on this amazing team. And and that, of course, we're going to do what the general manager tells us to do. Um, he's in charge. He's what makes this team so great. So we're just going to do what he says. And that's that. And then we get to be on the team. At the same time, I know that God's terms can sometimes seem scary and can seem unwise from a human perspective because it means we're giving up our own control, or I should say it means giving up the illusion of our own control and handing it over to God. But that's what Ruth and Boaz did. That's even what Jesus did. And so I think that we can do it too, even if it is scary. And and I think it's worth thinking about what does that mean? What does that look like in regular everyday life? And um, a few years ago, Nathan wrote a series of blog posts called eschatological business. Eschatological is a big theological term that just means God's future. So how do we do business as as if God's future was already here? And I don't have time to talk about every detail, but in those blog posts, he gives all these great suggestions for how in regular life we can align ourselves with God's future. And I'm thinking maybe we can put the links in the e-blast. Is that okay, Charity? Yeah, because uh, really they're just such, such great essays that Nathan has written, and, uh, and they are so practical, um, what it means to be a member of God's future now. So, um, so those will be in the e-blast, and, and I encourage you to look at them and read them because they're, they're really great. And, um, and they just help us think about what does it mean to be on God's team? What does it mean for God's future to be my future? And what does it mean to help spread that future to other people? Because that's what Ruth and Boaz did. And uh, I, think, I think they set a pretty good example for us to do the same. So, so let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help all of us to put our trust in you. Help us to know that you are the one who keeps us safe. You are the one who gives us a future. You are the resurrected one who has promised resurrection to us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us the gift of faith so that we can trust and love Jesus more and more.